0: Welcome to Uptime Logistics today. I'm your host, Doug Draper, and uh, we got a great show for you today. Before we jump in, I want to remind everybody that the the show is powered by CAP Logistics, uh, so I want to make sure you check those guys out uh, for all your transportation and logistics needs. Um, Today, as I mentioned, I'm super stoked about uh, getting together with our guests. Um, It's a unique um, topic. It's very relevant in the last 365 days. Um, and I'd like to welcome uh, Billy DeMong to our show. Billy, welcome to Uptime Logistics. Hey, thanks, Doug. It's great to be here. Nice. All right. So I'm going to give you a quick intro so our people know who the heck you are, and, uh, and then we'll learn a little bit, little bit more about yourself. So this is exciting for me, Billy. So uh, I'm just going to read it because I don't want to screw it up, but uh, Billy DeMong is an American former Nordic combined skier. We'll learn more about what that means in a minute and an Olympic gold medalist, uh, he's five-time Olympian. So Nagano, Salt Lake City, Torino, Vancouver, and uh, and, and Sochi uh, most recently. So um, I can't – it's just so cool to have you on the show and, and, and talk. One more thing I want our audience to know is that you actually met your wife through the Olympic world, and she's a former skeleton athlete.
1: Yep. And,
0: uh, yeah. yeah, and the last thing that I thought was super cool was that you were – um, the clo- the flag bearer for the closing ceremonies at the Vancouver uh, 2010 Olympics. That was um, the craziest day of my life. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to learn about that. And here, here, here's the last bit. I keep saying this is the most, this is the the most cool thing. But you are the first American ever to win uh, Nordic uh, Nordic gold. Uh, that is super impressive. Um, on right. a professional level, Billy, and then we'll jump into it. You're the former executive director at USA Nordic Sports. Um, currently doing all kinds of public speaking, and I think on your LinkedIn profile it said uh, pretty much uh, ready for almost anything, and uh, as long as it's legal, right? I guess yep. we'll start with that. Well, so. You know.
1: Cool. Uh, Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, Like you said, I I was a Nordic combined skier, which is one of the original Olympic disciplines combining the ski jumping and like we're talking about the distance jump, you know, the both the graceful one, but the one a lot of people associate with the agony of defeat. Um, But, you know, like kind of the modern day Formula One of the Winter Olympics. And then it Mm -hmm. also is cross-country skiing. So, you know, the two original ski sports, you know, when Norwegians, uh, invented skiing hundreds of years ago. They, it was originally used for transportation, which of course, you know, racing cross country was kind of the first of the ski events. But then they early on, you know, decided to get a little more extreme, so they started ski jumping, and that was, you know, mid 1800s is about the first real big like King's Cup competition in Norway. Um, and by the time the first Winter Olympic Games in 1924 were contested, Nordic was one of the few. Uh, original Olympic disciplines, which includes like bobsled, figure skating, cross country, ski jumping, Nordic combined, obviously. Um, And modern day Alpine, as we know it, wasn't around yet because it wasn't chairlift. So um, that's kind of my background. And like you said, I was fortunate enough to win the Olympics in 2010, uh, which was a lot of things coming together. And then for the last six years, I've been at the helm of an organization called USA Nordic Sport leading... Our athletes and our community into the future yeah that's great well you and i wouldn't be talking uh today without that cap
0: logistics connection right so most people may not associate uh the olympics with with, with uh transportation and logistics and maybe some do maybe i'm, I'm not a big enough nerd to, to associate that but anyway tell us how did you get connected with cap first and foremost
1: well so How I got connected is is really small world, but, you know, I consider myself a logistics uh, master because, you know, let's face it, you know, you think about the Olympics, you know, know the athletes got to China, but what you're missing is not just how they got to China, but the hundreds of competitions that our athletes have competed in, especially the last couple of years during COVID in, you know, countries Mm -hmm. all over the world. Most of the ski events are happening in Europe, um, quite a few in Asia these days, not a lot in the United States at the international level. And so we've been, you know, on any given week I'm planning, you know, 80 individual coaches and athletes traveling to six or eight countries around the world on the same days. Um, and we're moving massive amounts of people and equipment around the world, you know, on a small budget. So, you know, that's sort of my logistical background, both from my athlete days, as well as now as the administrator overseeing this whole show. But on the flip side, um, about a month and a half ago, we were we were planning a Continental Cup event here in Park City, Utah. And just a couple of days out, we realized that we had a critical piece of uh, measuring equipment for the International Ski Federation race director to use to make sure that the competition was fair. And it we only have one in the United States, and it had been left after a competition that was recently held in Connecticut and had been taken to Lake Placid, New York, but we needed it in Park City, Utah. And, you know, so with 48 hours to to go, I'm like freaking out, trying to figure out if I can fly somebody from Lake Placid to, you know, from New York to Utah, you know, and the tickets were crazy expensive. And, and honestly, the people that could make the trip for that weekend were very few and far between. And, and so I ended up hitting a really good friend of mine, Chris Miller, um, and just saying, I know you work with cargo. I know you work with logistics companies. Is there any way you can help me? You know, because I had even tried to apply for like Delta Cargo and they're like, no, you mm-hmm. need to pass a background check. You couldn't get it in time. And so, you know, he basically called uh, cap logistics. He's like, Hey, I've got a, I've got a client and, uh, you know, th- these guys can make it happen if it's possible and got a call directly from cap, like within minutes. And it was like, Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll just send somebody over to grab that thing, which we're talking Lake Placid, New York, five hours north of New York city. Really it's in the middle of the largest state park in the United States. It's 6 million acres. Mm. Somebody went and picked up this box, drove it to Boston, I was able to track it real time on my phone. I watched, you know, watched it get on a Delta direct flight to salt Lake and then some guy drove it up here. And, you know, I happened to, he didn't actually tell me when he was coming. He just said, he's coming, I'm coming in a bit. And so I was like, all right, I got a time to run quickly down to you know, the store to get some stuff. And I'm coming down the road from the ski jumps in park city. And I see this white delivery truck go by and I like, Call the guy and I'm like, Was that you? He's like, Yep. So I ended up getting the other end of this, you know, 14 hours after it left New York on its own in hand on the side of the road. So it was, it was an incredibly cool experience and it saved the day for this competition. Yeah, that, that is, that's an amazing story for sure.
0: So that's just one small piece of equipment that you talked about. But I, I want to um, jump into the logistics of kind of moving an Olympic team. And that absolutely was an intended pun. Um, but maybe you could talk about. It. I think when you and I were, were chatting a little bit earlier, there's a logistics of moving people, right? And we're just fresh out of spring break, so there's plenty of folks out there that had to logistically move their families on their spring break. And then you got the other piece, which is, um, you know, the equipment and things of that nature. And and that's the part I w- really want to focus on, uh, is not the people, but, but kind of the equipment because it's just not one guy throwing some st- skis on his back and saying, Here I come, uh, here I come Olympics. There's a whole lot more. To facility an entire team internationally on time safe and secure so talk to us about that process and uh and what that looks like
1: yeah again i mean like the road to the olympics is not just who's best at the time i mean our nation and, and and especially in our sport we have to qualify spots so again going back to like kind of that world tour the world cup tour you know we have to move and go to all these competitions and they're in scandinavia they're in central europe they're in asia they're in North America. And so we're moving not only the people, but like you said, we're moving the equipment and the equipment isn't as simple. You know, it's not just the pair of skis you see on television. For every pair of skis you see on TV, there's probably somewhere, depending on the discipline, between 10 and 50 other pairs that were there just in case the conditions were different. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. we're testing a lot of equipment as we're moving around, and that equipment has to be everywhere we go. And to the point where, Not only are we moving the skis but now we're moving all the equipment to service the skis so you know big boxes full of different types of wax and you know fluorocarbons all these different tools and you know in addition to all that you know we have all the other equipment that goes with ski jumping etc and so when we're traveling the world we're literally looking at you know how do we get the people there now how do we get the equipment there and a lot of times it's like it's not even just a, a price thing it's more like logistics like you know when we're going to Finland, we know that the flights that go to, let's say, Kuzimo, Finland, which is essentially the intersection of the Russian border and the Arctic Circle. It's out there. You know, mm-hmm. we know that every day five or six planes land in Kuzimo. Now, only one or two of those planes is actually big enough to take the jumping skis. So right out of the gate, we're making decisions. Are we are we gonna fly the skis with the with the passengers or are we gonna fly them with one person? to Helsinki and then rent a vehicle and drive them up, you know, what's gonna ensure that this stuff not only gets there, but gets there on time. And, you know, you gotta think most of our stuff is never in a place for more than four days at a time. You know what I mm. mean? It's constantly on the move. And so again, you know, all these things are part of my daily process, you know, as, as you said, I, I actually, and we'll get to that, but I, I just finished my second Olympic games as an administrator, so seven Olympics in a row, it was time for me and and I've worked with my board on a transition process. But right up until now, the end of the season here in twenty two, I've been overseeing the logistical process for, you know, like I said, sixty athletes and twenty staff to move around the world on any given weekend. Wow. And I'm sure you have a massive team behind
0: you assisting you, right?
1: Yeah, massive team of like <laughs> a handful of coaches who are traveling themselves who are actually really very uh, scrappy and and efficient um, about how they do this. And that's one of the yeah. things we talked about, Doug. Is you know because we're such a resource, we're operating in such a resource scarce environment in terms of humans and money. Um, we have to be really, really efficient, right? So when we go to rent our vans for the year, or when we're going to rent vehicles or plan flights or or whatever, we're constantly looking for that that one extra. Like, how do we save a little bit of money? Move an extra person, you know? Like, only hire one person who can cover two or three things. And so again, it's like, it's like this, it's logistics all day, every day. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The creativity and, 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 um, innovation, if you will, to try to figure it out. And I'm sure, you know, I, I bet with, if you're a carrier or this is just kind of a general comment and you could, you know, give me a thumbs up or thumbs down, but I think there's gotta be a pride of, of, of service, pride of ownership to say, I am now in charge of ensuring that my Olympic team or my qualifying team to get to the Olympics, it, it's in my hands. And if these skis and equipment don't get to where they're supposed to get, I personally could have an impact uh, negatively. So have you found that that the, the people you partner with are super excited and stoked about working with, with the Olympic group?
1: Absolutely. I mean, like, you're never going to find a group of athletes that's more personable, more thankful, and easier to work with than, like, nordic olympic skiers you know what i mean they're humble they're hard-working they're really you know uh goal oriented um and so like all of our partners like they're just from nyu Lingone, sport performance you know to backcountry.com like everybody's into the fact that they they can really work with the athletes and support the athletes in a way that has a real real big benefit for the athletes and on the flip side they get to be part of that journey and 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 it's, it's created so many win-wins, and that's one of the things that I really enjoy the most about not only the job that I had, but what I'm going to be doing going into the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, we
0: talked about efficiency, and then another kind of buzzword that you and I spoke about was was innovation. Mm-hmm. And I think that the story that we had talked about, uh, that's not really logistics-related, but it uh, really defines the concept of innovation. I think it's important for our audience to understand that. And it was really the mindset that you were involved with with um uh, usa uh, nordic not really being a powerhouse and the uh, the uh, paradigm shift of how you approached all aspects from from training to equipment the whole nine yards and and how you got the team to buy into that and some of the the cool stuff that you did outside the box so talk about the innovation um and then how you got the team buy-in and some of the cool stuff that you did to really take the team to the next level
1: yeah. And I mean, actually, to, to even peel that back a little bit and, and kind of departing from the pure logistics connection, obviously, with cap. But, yeah. you know, what we've what we really focused on and I've been like a, you, you shared five Olympic Games, you know, we had a leader that came in and he said, we're going to do what America's never been able to do, which is win medals in this sport and as a young athlete we were we there was a group of us so when i say as young athletes it's really referring to the group that we moved together to train together to be part of a small sport in a big country and we started building the belief that we could win and we got really close by our second games in salt lake but where we what we realized after was that we weren't taking care of some of the more like detail oriented things so when we start talking about efficiency and especially innovation it was after we had gotten some experience and really started to build the belief that we could win those first medals. Um, because when I was a kid, I think I shared with you, you know, like it was like 30th. That was like a goal. You know what I mean? Like America, mm-hmm. we can be 30th at the Olympics. That's good, you know? And as we started to break it down, we realized no, what we really need to do is actually, you know, be in this longer, more like long term goal focused, strategic plan focused. And we need to become more efficient and more innovative than the other teams and so you know what you shared just now like we really created the best possible situation when we hired back one of our our teammates from the 1998 olympics who had gone on and uh, gotten a degree in exercise physiology and started to really network within the olympic movement from track and field to cycling and looking at what other sports were doing to to improve especially on the physiological side And he had a group of maturing, uh, Nordic combined skiers, myself, Johnny Spillane, Todd Lodwick and the Camerata brothers, um, who were willing to take a chance and try something different. So instead of doing what Norway did every day, which was like, get up, we, you know, we get up, we eat bread, we go for some ski jumping, and then we have some more bread and some jam and some brown cheese. And then we go, you know, for a run. And then we come back and, you know, we eat some pasta and then, you know, we go to bed Mm -hmm. every day. The best in the world, were doing both things at once and trying to get better at both things every day. And when Dave Jarrett, this coach uh, and former teammate of mine, came back as a coach, he said, look, guys, if we take a different approach, if you trust me and we're like, we trust you, let's let's try something. We were ready for change. He wanted to try something. He said, let's try to become much more innovative about our training. And so what we, what we did is we laid out a four year timeline through the Torino games and said, okay, if we're actually gonna get better than Norwegians, we have to do something better or different than they do. Um, we can't necessarily do more. And he said, look, we can't be better at ski jumping and cross country skiing every single day. Cause the two are almost diametrically opposed. It's like trying to get better at the marathon and the high jump, you know, your fast mm-hmm. twitch, adrenaline sport versus like slow twitch, you know, like cardio sport so we started to periodize our training and we we created like macro cycles of four years and then micro cycles of months within the four years and really it was about building up and breaking down and building up and, and recovering and we started to actually do like months at a time where it was only cross-country focused let's put in a huge base like in a like in a specialized endurance athlete let's not worry about whether or not our jumping gets worse We're just going to build the base we need to get better at the cross-country portion of this. Then we're gonna come back and we're gonna recover and we're gonna get fresh and now we're gonna work on the jumping because we've already taken a step in the cross-country. We're not worried about that getting worse. So we're able then, instead of going like this, like trying to Mm -hmm. push both up at the same time, we pushed one up and then held that gain and then we pushed um, both sports up over time. And, and it, and like I said, it happened, you know, week to week, month to month, year to year. And that was like a total departure from the rest, the way the rest of the world was doing it. And not just in, nordic combined, but even in the specialized disciplines of ski jumping and cross country, like we were much more likely to take time away to do something else that would make us better in the long run than just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. And then that really yeah. extrapolated. You know, we, so we, and essentially we became more efficient with our time because instead of trying to do two hard things at once and get better at both, we're like, no, let's focus and make sure we get better at one, take the gain. Now let's go focus on the other. And then that led, once we kind of figured out the training and we were able to prove that out to all sorts of like, you know, you get a little bit of confidence from success. So we started to play around with a lot of things, including, uh, I think we, we discussed before this, but. Uh, the folks at home, I think would be fascinated if anybody is a, uh, endurance athlete, you know, you're familiar with like live high, train high, um, which is like, you know, essentially cyclists, triathletes, runners, a lot of endurance athletes moving to altitude, whether it's in Colorado or, or whatever. It's a known fact that if you live at a lower oxygen level, even in a tent at sea level, you will grow more red blood cells. You will have physiological adaptations to build a bigger engine. The problem you run into is that most racing happens at sea level. And so now you need to tune this bigger engine to be able to, to, to use the fuel that you have when you go down. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we used to drive down to Salt Lake, live in Park City, which is pretty good. Um, or we'd go down to Europe or go to, to San Diego or something to get down but you know, again, you're going to Europe, you really kind of want to work on, and this is just the Nordic combined thing, but like we wanted to work on our ski jumping, but here we are trying to get faster across country. So now we're, we're, we're kind of going backwards on what, you know, we're trying to achieve by, you know, like, um, breaking out our disciplines and trying to improve. So we actually started training in, in Park City at altitude with supplemental oxygen. And the way it started was like mm. just trying something new. You know, we put it, a big tank next to a treadmill and a nose cannula and just pumped it up and we're like, all right, yep, I can go faster now. Um, And then we slowly developed that into a much more refined, you know, data-driven process where we measured our lung capacity and our respiratory rate at like, you know, like a hard effort. And then we created like customized um, uh, reservoirs for each athlete. So, you know, if you needed 200 milliliters of oxygen per breath to bring you to sea level, you created a 200 milliliter reservoir. And then instead of running it through your nose, you ran it into your mouth through a big open hose that had this reservoir. So every breath you're taking in that extra bit of oxygen. And then, you know, of mm-hmm. course, after time, we're like, all right, we've got it dialed. Now let's take it outside. So we got carbon fiber, you know, D cell oxygen tanks that fit in a Campbell back. And we would now all of a sudden we're living high and training low and not even having to like sleep in another bed or go for a drive, you know? So, um, everything from that. And then going back to ski jumping, you know, ski jumping is literally like the formula one of winter sport. I know people think of formula one and they probably think more of Alpine and Alpine for sure has got the speed and, and, and they have a lot of equipment uh, things that they, they work on. But, you know, again, like ski jumping, everything is like formula one because like, Every detail of the suit that the athletes wear is measured. It has to fit within certain rules, but there's always some flexibility, right? Like whether you can find a different way to put a suit together, like by panel by panel to give it a better shape in the air, something more aerodynamic, or you can get better material from a different manufacturer with a different weft is what they say in fabric. You know, like maybe it's smoother to the touch and in a wind tunnel, it'll test actually this creates more lift at a braking speed of 90 kilometers an hour. I'm just throwing something out. But we started playing sure. around more and more with the suits. We started bringing all the manufacturing of our suits in-house to the point where, you know, in that awkward transition from we used to buy them off the shelf and they were a size whatever. I, I I want a size 50. You know, all of a sudden it became customized. You had to fit within the rules. Now, all of a sudden, we're trying to find that performance edge within the rules. And, like, the athletes had to learn how to sew. And we started traveling with sewing machines and, and constantly mm-hmm. – tweaking changing and the same thing started happening with skis at about midstream in my career where the skis themselves the manufacturers were able to play around more and customize the way the skis react and as a skier yourself i think you know you think of skis as how they react on the snow well in ski jumping it's how do they react in the air so they actually started to tune the skis and if you watch it in high speed the skis actually flex Mm -hmm. a little bit to climb into the air after you leave the takeoff and so we started playing with the skis and then the bindings to create different angles that the skis would actually plane out in the air and create more lift. So again, you know, you're know, you talking about constantly trying to improve. And the, obviously the further anything progresses, the less return you get, but the more important that return is because the 10th the of a percent or the 1%, if you're hugely lucky, is for sure the difference between 1st and 30th at the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot to to unpack
0: on on that. The question that that was just resonating is the buy-in, right? Because you just talked about really, I refer to it as a paradigm shift, right? So the athletes, right? You got a, you you can tune and tack, and that and I, and I get that. But if I'm somebody that says all my life I've trained and done both disciplines every single day, and we have to do them every day, or we're going to lose out, and then. Talk about the buy-in with the team. Um, That's a tough did, was one. Was it you pretty know.
1: pretty easy, or what what happened there? Again, I mean, it's a tough one. It was pretty easy for us. We've we in our team have had a very good culture of teamwork, and like and therefore, because the way it, it developed, it really developed in Colorado, in Steamboat Springs, in the nineties. It went from like, hey, America, we're good enough to be thirtieth, to like, no, America, we're going to win medals someday. And when that paradigm shift happened that at that point, it created this culture because by, by demand, if you wanted to be on the team, if you wanted to be part of this team that was actually goal-oriented, not just like we'll send the best guys we've got, but we're going to send the best team and we're going to build that team, it mm-hmm. became you need to move to Steamboat. You need to show up in the morning at 7 a.m. every day forever. You need to, you know, and then – as you start to get involved in that kind of a team environment, your, your ego, if you have one, gets beat up real quick. And so if you're not buying in, if you're like, I know better, I'm going to do my thing, you're not going to survive in that kind of environment because you, know, you can't be good every day if you're going to be great. And so it takes a team that's going to work together at the appropriate level, take the ego out of it, and work on the right things. And so when you talk, you're asking about you know, buying into like, something completely different, I mean, I think there might have been a couple of naysayers on our team who like very quickly either got out or got on board. And that's mm. that's been a really powerful uh, kind of way that our team has continued to develop over the years is that it's more about the group because success is is really defined by the team and not by the individual. But it takes individuals that will continue to push that level so the whole team can rise with them. And that's mm. that's, I think... The really powerful way that I've felt not only in sport, but also in business life is like if you surround yourself or are part of a group that really is mission driven and, and focused on the overall result for the for the group and for the team, for the company, for the organization, then you're 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 just you're you're going to come to work with a different attitude. Like it doesn't matter if somebody hands you a broom and you're the CEO, if something needs to be swept and that's going to keep the team up for the day, or you know, keep them off task. Then the CEO is going to sweep the floor. And that's, I mean, that's a lot of how I ran USA Nordic the last, like, six years was, hey, guys, everybody here, in order for us to go and grow and get to where we need to go as an organization, I need you all to do five to ten jobs. But guess what? I'll do 15, and, and, like, it's going to suck, and we're going to laugh about it together. Let's go. And when you're willing to lead like that and the team buys in like that, even when people get tired, you know, like... Everybody looks around and they've got confidence, like, okay, I can keep going because everybody else here is willing to do it.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. You know, you just defined from an outsider's perspective, literally just now when you were talking through that, the perception is it's an individual sport. There's an individual on skis moving by themselves. There's an individual um, going off the off the jump. And the success has not been that way at all. It's been focused on on the team, which uh, which is great. And we're also writing a script for a movie. I could see this whole thing <laughs> coming together as, as, as how to bond and, and create teams to uh, to achieve a goal. So
1: yeah. very cool. I mean, I could tell you, if you ever get a chance to watch the race from 2010, there's two Americans. You know, here we are. We never meddled in the sport before. My teammate Johnny Spillane and I had gone back and forth over the years, like, you know, and the nice thing again about having some, having a team where people can take turns at the lead without a lot of ego, allows people that need to to take a little bit of a break, even if they're still going to work, they're still competing hard. Maybe they're just missing that little bit to be pushing the envelope. So, like I remember, I, I got hurt one year, and Johnny won world championships, and I was happy for him. But the nice thing was, I, is that we were so close that I was like, okay. If he's good enough, that means I'm good enough. Because, like, we've trained together, we've competed a million times. Like, I know I'm as good as he is. I don't have to say it Mm -hmm. to anybody. I can say it now. But at the time, it was just what I needed in my head to say, okay, now you're ready to actually think that big. And then on the flip Mm -hmm. side, there were times in our career, like the Olympics, where, you know, I led the way. And so when you watch that race and the two of us are together for most of the race, the goal going in, and we talked about it before the race, was not you know, for me to beat him or him to beat me, but it was for one of us to win. In fact, we basically stopped short in the cabin right before the race started to, to say, okay, here's the plan. We're going to go out. We're going to catch everybody. We're going to take the lead. We're going to try to drop everybody. If we can't, we got to go hard, like, you know, at least a K out if this guy, this guy, or this guy that could out sprint us or with us. And then, I think what we never really thought through was like, what happens if it's just the two of us? And then I, you know, I think Mm. we're just like, well, we'll just, we'll just burn it out and see what happens. But, you know, we literally went into that race and we, we did benefit from that sort of team uh, approach to an individual sport, because again, not every team, not, and, and it's actually rare to find it. Not every team thinks like that. So when we first brought like bike racing tactics to Nordic skiing, it was like revolutionary. Now you see it a lot more, but you know, again, that, that sort of teamwork to be able to say hey doug how are you feeling today you're a better sprinter than me and then you're like hey i'm feeling pretty good okay i'll lead you sit in and then when you're ready you go you know and then that guarantees that you can give your best effort because i'm willing to like mm-hmm. help you do it because at the end of the day it's more important that one of us win than you and i fight each other over it
0: yeah very cool so I'm going to come back in a minute. We're going to do some rapid fire questions, um, yeah. which I think our audience will enjoy. But before that, I wanted It's almost a a pretty big shift. But I want to get your your feedback kind of uh, the Olympics and 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 where do you think they're going to be five years out? You know, you, you um, and I'm not really sure. Not a specific um, piece of the Olympics, but just how it's changed and where you think it'll be uh, five years, whether there's increased uh, number of sports or whether interest levels are going to taper off or interest levels are going to explode in certain um, you know certain areas. So five years from now, what does the Olympic uh, Olympic scene look like um, as the games
1: go? Well, so that's a great question and one that I'm super geeked on. So the Olympics in this country has always been a a hugely popular endeavor. You know, like right from the get-go, 1924, I mean, 1932 was the third Winter Olympic Games, and it was held in Lake Placid, New York, right? So the U.S. has really embraced the Olympic movement all along. But it's gone through a couple of really tumultuous times. Um, I think most people would be familiar with the movie Pre or Prefontaine or the story about the runner Steve Prefontaine. And essentially, like during his career, there was a shift, which he was part of, that, you know, basically athletes rose up and said listen like we're we're going to the olympics but we need more support we need you know more oversight of how and more you know more guarantee of a fair process to qualify to go and so the amateur athletic union was the kind of the group that was uh, the organization that was overseeing the olympic movement congress came in in the 70s and they they came in and they reset it a little bit and they created a monopoly which is now called the u.s olympic committee um, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee through the Amateur Sports Act. And what that did is it, it created a monopoly, a federally mandated monopoly that was able to monetize the rights of the rings to then you know, do all of this oversight and, and uh, logistics and everything else for the Olympics. Um, and that worked really well for, for at least three decades but over the last couple decades, as as the amount of resources they're able to derive from the monetization of the rings has decreased, you've've you've, I'm sure you've seen it. Everybody's seen it in the news. You know, athletes are paying their own way in some cases. There's just not a lot of support. I think the average Olympic athlete is making about fifteen thousand a year, which isn't much money, but when you think about it, most of the olympians aren't making any money there's a handful that make a lot of money and then a few that are uh, and then a lot that are paying their own way or just breaking even et cetera. and so what i see is right now congress has passed the olympic reform act about two years ago and that actually seeded a new commission almost identical to what happened in the 1970s and that commission is comprised largely of, of former and current olympic athletes to study the movement and to come back to congress and say, this is the direction that, the, that Congress needs to go to continue to make America one of the best countries in the Olympic movement. And I think this is really gonna be what's gonna change the landscape in the next five years because this is now happening. This got passed, it, or, uh, it passed two years ago and it got its funding in the last omnibus bill that passed a couple weeks ago. And so we're gonna see that take place over the next year and likely in the next two years, Congress will have taken action on that and what I see from that is not necessarily like like a handout, no, you know, like a direct new tax to fund the Olympics, but empowering maybe the USOPC further to operate a national sports lottery, like what the United Kingdom or uh, I should say Britain or Germany or Norway or Australia, how they're funding their Olympic movement. So that would create more resources for programs and for direct athlete support. On the flip side, there's the World Class Athlete Program, which is a little known uh, part of the military and we have a couple athletes that are in that program and they're basically full-time active duty uh, armed forces members that are assigned to pursue the Olympic dream. And, nice. you know, it's, it's, it's very small right now. It's about 50 total, but that could be expanded and create additional career pathways. Then it would not only put more resources in, in athletes pockets to be able to afford rent and training and all the other things, but it puts them into like a really nice, career pipeline where they can go into the armed forces when they're done, they can go to officer school. You know, if they finish college, they have access to GI Bill and education and really good healthcare. And there's obviously a lot of accountability with becoming a member of the armed services. So there's there's a ton of different things that I think will be um, vetted, but within the next five years, I think that's gonna be the biggest shift that's gonna happen. And what that is going to do is it's gonna make the Olympic movement a lot more fun again especially the closer you get to it. Like right now it's a resource constrained environment. As this gets more resources, you're gonna see a lot more focus on like how good Americans are because they obviously would be better if there's more athletes able to stay in sports longer, train harder and focus more. Um, And it's a lot more fun when you have resources to play with and you're you're having success. So I don't know, that was a long-winded answer, but it's obviously something new (laughs) to me. Yeah. No, it was a great answer. I, I had no idea. What
0: what's the name of the piece of legislation again that was passed two years ago?
1: It's called the Empowering Olympians Act, I believe. Okay. It's essentially cool. I just want to see if our audience wanted to, to take
0: a look at it. So um well, hey, this is gonna be kind of fun. So I'm gonna fire off some questions for you, right? So we'll start we'll start with a, a softball here. So tell me what your proudest accomplishment has been as an uh as an not only Olympian, as an athlete, but potentially even in your Olympic career?
1: I mean, honestly, the last six years with the USA Nordic is my proudest accomplishment. And again, you know, going back to resource constraints, my sport was cut from funding um, after I retired entirely. And so mm-hmm. I basically took the helm of a small organization called USA Ski Jumping. We merged in Nordic combined and women uh, women's teams and started building all of it together from the community level from the clubs from alaska to new hampshire to the world cup teams and you know as of now it's almost six uh percent bigger financially and ath- athlete-wise than it was six years ago and it's on a sustainable it's got a nice foundation and a bright future so i think for me that was a much harder and heavier lift than uh than winning the olympics myself but making sure that the next generation of athletes and, and far into the future, Americans can, can excel in, in the sports that I love ski jumping and order combined. that, that to me was, was number one. Yeah,
0: that's very cool. That's very cool. So the next one is what's the best piece of advice that you've received, not given, but the best piece of advice you've received when you were an
1: Olympic athlete? Um, big trees grow slowly. You got to elaborate on that one. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, short, but, uh, there was a, there is a very, very, uh, amazing exercise physiologist who used to be at the U S Olympic committee in Colorado Springs named JT Kearney. And when I first started on the national team, I was like eager and, you know, like super focused. I'd already been to my first Olympics and, um, going into Salt Lake, we were on this, like, you know, learn to believe or, you know, build the belief to win And he came with his 10 rules, Kearney's 10 rules of the endurance universe. And it was like, Kansas is boring, but you got to go through Kansas to get to Colorado. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, food is fuel. If you can't find anything else, the Snickers will do just fine. And like one of the biggest ones was big trees grow slowly. And, and, um, you know, at the time when you're 17, 18, 19, and you're trying to build this belief and you're. You're, you know, you're one of the better ones in the world. It's hard to know and believe why it's gonna take another five or six years for you to become the best in the world. And so I, I, it took me probably a couple years after Salt Lake in 2002 to really fully start to grasp what JT Kearney meant by big trees grow slowly. But what it did is it turned my mindset from like, I'm gonna win the Olympics and at 21 years old and then change my name and move on with my life. And it said, okay, no, actually big trees grow slowly. It's realistic to think 2010 will be the time when it's possible. Now let's back that mm-hmm. down to where we are today.
0: Nice. All right. Here's the next one: cross country or jumping.
1: I mean, obviously, I would say both, but I would, from, if I had to choose one, cross country. And I'm, and and it pains me because I love the adrenaline rush of ski jumping, but man, cross country is such a lifelong pursuit very cool um distance or speed ooh speed <laughs> i know that's why um, i'm a confused guy
0: yeah nice um book smarts or street smarts street love it i if you said book smarts i'd say we got to rewind this whole thing and start over that uh that wouldn't align know, with it.
1: in profile school of hard knocks <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly all right so um I know you, you can't say all of them on this question, but tell me which one of the, uh, of the Olympics that you attended was your favorite one. Vancouver. And then give me a piece on why that is.
1: Vancouver. And I'll tell you, like Vancouver was almost like a home games. It was like a home away from home. You know, Canada was great. And the other thing that probably made it even better for me than Salt Lake is Salt Lake was an amazing Olympics is I was mature enough to be in the moment and enjoy it. Salt Lake, I was 21, trying to win the Olympics, stressed out, didn't have any fun. Vancouver, won the Olympics, totally relaxed, and uh, just enjoyed every moment of it.
0: That's nice. All right, Billy, this is a logistics show, so I think we need to, to uh, wind up with with that topic. So at the beginning, uh, when you talked about how you were introduced to cap logistics, you uh, were talking about a device you had to get from uh, from New York. Uh, out to the event. So tell us, what was that thing? What was that device? And why is there just one of them in the U.S.? And uh, so so wrap us up and explain all that.
1: Well, I mean, it's funny that you asked. So, you know, I mentioned innovation and jumpsuits and all that. So in modern day ski jumping, now that we've all been exposed to wingsuit flying, you know, one of the things that's got a really, really tight tolerance is the crotch measurement. And so the machine <laughs> that we needed was one that we use for, you know, making suits, but also what the International Ski Federation, uh, you know, race director uses to make sure that the athletes are uh, adhering to the rules. And so what it is, is it's like literally this stand that's like very official, the athletes stand on it, and then they like, you know, uh, it's got like force plate to make sure you're not on your tippy toes. And then it has a measuring device that comes up and it says, okay, you're 80 centimeters off the ground. And you have to pass that measurement at the top of the hill and at the bottom of the hill. And so that's how they make sure that you're not jumping in a wingsuit, right? And so we had Mm. the one device that we have in the United States that we use for all of our international competitions and for our team suits. And, like, so, again, one thing that we needed for the weekend, we didn't have it, and it was a crotch measuring device. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: I don't know if I've ever sh- uh, end, uh, uh, finished up a show using the term crotch measuring device, but this uh, we're going to do it on this one, so it's a first. <laughs> well,
1: it's uh, it's not a fun device to use, but you're welcome to try it next time you're in town.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I don't think so. so. Well, B- Billy, we started as a logistics discussion, and we really got a better understanding of the Olympics, and I'm glad we did that because it's been a fascinating discussion, just not only how the team has succeeded and had that paradigm shift to really have the the, the team-focused winning mentality, um, but also learn a little bit about, about yourself and perspective on the Olympics. So, Bill, I can't thank you enough for spending the time and joining us today uh, on Off Time Logistics.
1: Well, Doug, hey, thanks for having me. And to be honest, like, I'm so happy that we were able to make this happen, and I can't thank Cap Logistics enough for helping me make our competition happen here last month.
0: Great. And I'd like to thank our uh,
1: audience uh, at Uptime Logistics. Obviously, it's powered
0: by CAP. We talked about some of their uh, amazing stories. And you can find more information about the show in the description below. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. And uh, please visit caplogistics.com for all your transportation solutions. So we will catch you guys next time. Thanks for joining Uptime Logistics.